well, this is your lucky day. I wrote a 25-page paper on this passage last semester, so I decided I would just read it for you. Is that okay? I'm not going to do that. I'm only kidding. Now, there is a lot in this passage uh, that I learned last semester, and you will not hear all of that. I wouldn't want you to hear all of that. In fact, I would probably put myself to sleep reading that paper to you. Uh, But today we are going to learn some significant truths from this letter to the church at Philadelphia. One of the major images you'll see at the beginning of this passage and one that is picked up again in the passage is this concept or image of an open door or of a key or of those two things, of course, going hand in hand. Christ is identified as one who is holding the key of David and who has the sovereign ability to open or shut a door, a significant door. And so in many ways, Christ has been given a key to the city or holds the key to the city. Has anyone in here ever received a key to the city? Just wanted to make sure. Audrey, you've, got, you've gotten one. Very good. Very good. Well, most of the time when we see someone receive a key to the city, we see people like celebrities or Audrey and <laughs> receiving that key to the city. Uh, it's a token of honor. It is given to someone who has brought a good name to the city, someone who has done good will for the city. You'll oftentimes see it presented to an athlete who comes back home or a politician who comes back home or an actor or a singer who comes back home and the key to the city is given to them because they have brought a good name to the city. And so in the same way, Jesus has the key to the city of David. And so today, a key to the city is a very symbolic award. Most of the time, that key of the city isn't actually going to get you in anywhere. Does that key get you in anywhere? I don't know. It might. Uh, But today, when you receive a key to the city, it doesn't actually let you in or out of the city. You basically have to follow the same laws and protocol that any other citizen would have to. But there was a time when the key to the city actually meant just that you were given a key that you could let yourself into the city without the guards having to open the gate for you. There was a time, an ancient time, when most cities had a wall built around them. And so there might come a time when someone from another country, someone was so trusted, maybe it's a military general or a person, a royal person, may have been given a special honor, a special way of showing trust that they were given a key to that gate of the city. And so they didn't need the guards or special permission to open or shut that city gate. They could, in many ways, let themselves in. And they could lock the door, of course, or lock the gate when they were going back out. That leader was so trusted and so valued, they didn't need those guards. So yes, today, while key to the city is still a very significant uh, honor it doesn't actually give you access to or from a city. In the case of Jesus holding the key of David, Jesus doesn't just hold a key, but something more significant. The permission and the power to open or shut access to the kingdom of God. The key of David is a reference to one other scripture in our Bible. In Isaiah 22, there is mention of a key of David, and that is it. 
We don't hear any more about something called the key of David. But if you had the key of David in the Old Testament, of course, you could gather it was one who could control admittance to or could reject access to the holy city. I still remember from my trip to the Holy Land last year, there is a wall around the ancient city of Jerusalem. Of course, that wall is more from the 15th and 16th century. It's not the original wall. But there is still significant security there. And while you need more than a key to get in or out, it was a reminder. It was a reminder that you still needed, in some ways, special permission or passports or anything like that to get in or out of that city. Being excluded from a city, especially if you wanted to get in, is not a very good feeling, is it? But then if you are permitted to that city, it is a feeling of honor or acceptance. And as we'll soon see, the church at Philadelphia faced some bullying from a local religious body, a religious body perhaps uh, that we least expect, a local Jewish body. And so from the get-go, as was customary, Jesus identifies himself in a way that would have meant something to the people at Philadelphia. The people at Philadelphia were in many ways shut out of religious life in their own city. They were told that they were not authentic. They were told that because they were not Jewish but Christians, that they did not serve the true God and that they had no place. And so in many ways, Jesus begins by giving them the assurance by saying, I have the key to the kingdom, and I will let you in. No one else in this city has any say over your presence here. No one else in this city has any say over your soul or your place in God's kingdom. Jesus says, that authority lies with me. And that was an important message for the church at Philadelphia to hear, a church that was excluded and shut out in more ways than one. Of course, a little later on, Jesus continues on in this key and door illustration, saying he, that there is a door that no one can shut. It's not the only time that Jesus uses a door metaphor. In fact, next week, when we look at our final letter to the churches in Laodicea, we will hear that familiar Bible passage, Behold, I stand at the door and and knock. Some of you may have that on a bookmark or a painting at your house. It's a very popular scripture that we take with us. It's a reminder that Jesus is always there wanting to be in our lives if we would just let him in. But to the letter at Philadelphia, Jesus says the door is open. Jesus is not knocking. That door is already standing wide open. Jesus is ultimately saying, I have opened this door and it is time for you to step through. It is time for you to seize on the opportunity to join me in my work in the world. In kingdom work, Jesus is telling the church it's time to be bold and to seize the opportunity to live out your faith boldly, even when you are shut out. If Jesus were to place a door in front of us, First Baptist Church, what would we think and how would we respond? Where does that open door lead for us? What is our door of opportunity as a faith community? 
Will we stay on this side of the door and say we're not quite ready to step through and follow Jesus? Or will we take his hand and move through that door and find all that God has laid before us as a path to ministry and mission? Jesus says, I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. From that letter, we gather that the church had to endure much hardship, just like the other churches that we have heard from in Revelation. In fact, they had fallen on such hard times and such hardships, it almost feels like there wasn't many of them left. Jesus says, I know you have little strength. I wonder what that means. Does it possibly mean that they had almost given up in principle? That there were conversations amongst themselves to say, you know, I think we need to shut this church down. We don't have much strength left. Were they saying we can't fight the ways of the world? We can't work against the powers and principalities of the world. They are too strong for us to overcome. We've got too little strength. Or maybe it looks something like a lot of churches are facing today. Conversations about resources and how we're going to move forward with our finances and our facilities and how we can be good stewards of our resources. Whatever the church at Philadelphia was thinking, I think that's something many churches are asking now. It doesn't seem like we have the same strength we may have had 30 or 40 years ago. And I'm not speaking of First Baptist Church Black Mountain, I'm thinking of the church as a whole. It feels that the church as a whole, the universal church in North America is in decline, and we say our strength is waning. Last year, we formed a stewardship committee that sat down and asked what we could do because it seemed like, it felt like, we were losing strength from a financial standpoint, the way that we cared for our facilities and our leadership. And I think we would all agree, who were on that stewardship committee, that the Lord has blessed us with much strength. We just have to be creative and innovative and thinking outside the box and knowing how to utilize those resources. There are ways we can utilize our leadership more effectively, and we will continue to work on that. There are ways that we can utilize our finances more effectively, and we will continue to work on that. There are ways we can utilize our facilities and our grounds more effectively, and we will continue to pray about that. But we discover that there are those times when, yes, we feel that our strength is waning, but God reminds us, that because of him, we can be strong even in our weakness. And that is a truth that the church at Philadelphia needed to hear. I think it's a truth that churches today need to hear as well. And so after issuing a word of judgment on this synagogue of Satan, Jesus says, hold on to what you have. It's in many ways, it's Jesus coming back and saying, I'm acknowledging, yeah, it's, it's tough times for you. You may not have a whole lot left to hold on to, but hold on to it. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The word crown comes up often in the book of Revelation, often sitting atop a warrior or sitting atop the Christ or a crown sitting atop a beast. Sometimes there are multiple crowns sitting on top of figures in the book of Revelation. And so I think immediately when we hear this word crown, so that no one will take your crown, we're thinking of that royal crown that a king or queen might wear. 
But the Greek word implies something different, a different kind of crown in this particular passage. When Jesus says, hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown, the Greek word implies a crown of victory, which is more consistent with the text. It is a crown that is like a garland that was given to athletes when they were victorious. A crown that you wore around your head because you won a competition or because you were a victor in battle. And so once again, Jesus is commending a city and promising a victory celebration and recognition if the church would simply hold true to its call. Jesus is saying, I know you're wavering, which by the way is the message to just about every church in Asia Minor at this point. I know you're wavering, but hold strong to the faith. And we will celebrate victory together, is ultimately Jesus' message. He says, hold on to your crown. Hold on to your crown so that no one will seize it from you. Implying that someone may take the victory from us. Now that's an interesting turn of phrase. Because as Christians, we don't believe that anyone can take our victory crown or that we can lose our salvation in Christ. But Jesus may be talking about something altogether different here. Jesus says, hold on to this victory object, the garland. You know, one of the cool things about a victory object is that it's yours forever. Up until very recently, my high school trophies and medals were still on my bookshelf in my room. 20 years later, mom and dad finally put them away and turned the room into something else, a guest room for my girls, actually. But I remember still walking in there 20 years later and saying, yeah, you know, one time I was moderately athletic. At one time, I could give a pretty good speech, or I could do well in speech competition. I remember that. Those were what the trophies were. Because I held on to them forever. They always meant something, and we'll probably never throw them away. They'll go into a box, because you don't throw trophies away, do you? You hold on to it forever. It's a recognition. It's a reminder that you accomplished something. I've been able to relive that now with my two girls. Uh, When they've played soccer or basketball, they've gotten medals and trophies. And they will not let anyone seize their crown hey, Maggie, can I put this up on the shelf? It's hers, by the way. It's Macy's. They will not let anyone take their victory object. In the ancient Greek and Roman Empire, an athlete who received this garland or any kind of a trophy was given a special status. Even today, medals and trophies and banners and pennants, official prizes, especially if you're a professional athlete or an MVP or you won an Olympic gold medal, in many ways you've been given special status for life, haven't you? Yeah, I can appreciate those cross-country and speech trophies I got in high school, but I'll be honest, they don't do a lot of good for me these days. However, if you are the NBA or NFL or MLB MVP, that's going to mean something for you. If you have a gold medal from the Olympics, you're probably not going to have trouble finding a job, are you? At the very least, you can be in commercials all you want to, I'm guessing. 
But even more than that, you're, probably, you're given a status in society that cannot be taken from you because you achieve something that no one else, hardly anyone else, has been able to do. You're hired for movies and, and banquets and you host award shows because you've won this token of victory. But that does not mean the championship can't be forfeited, right? So no one may be able to take it from you, but you may just forfeit it yourself. You may take action that will cause you to lose your victory. Take it from a University of Louisville basketball fan. Because we won the 2013 NCAA Basketball Championship, I remember Valor and I were watching in our living room and we went crazy when we won. And yet, if you went to the KSC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky, that banner would not be there. Because they committed major NCAA infractions and therefore their victory was wiped from the record book. Now, no one took it from them, so to say. The argument is they forfeited it because they broke the rules. They went against what they were supposed to do as a college team. They broke the rules. Many Christians, we hold to this notion of once saved, always saved, and we can never lose our salvation in Christ, and I affirm that as well. But in this passage, and in a few points of revelation Jesus does still imply that we can forfeit our victory I think Jesus is saying that on this earth we can walk away from the church freely we can walk away from doing the work of Christ no one's going to stop us we can say we're not going to be involved in the work of the kingdom here on earth no one's stopping you, but we will lose the victory. We will lose our ability to be able to affect the world with the love of Jesus Christ if we walk away from the work we are called to. And so, yes, while Jesus may keep us in his loving, eternal arms, we can choose in this life to give ourselves as much to the work of the church as we choose or we can simply step back and forfeit our victory, so to say. What could that look like? Does it mean giving up? Does it mean becoming exclusive or judgmental or prejudiced or hypocritical as an individual Christian or as the church? I think that would be giving up on the love of Christ. So yes, we can be secure in the grace of of Jesus, but it is entirely possible for us to throw up our hands as a church or as individuals and say, you know what, I'm done. I give up. Take this victory crown from me. Someone else do it. Nothing's stopping us from doing that. And so this is a caution to us. Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia, hold on to what you have. Hold on to the victory in Christ when you feel weak and your strength is waning and you are ready to throw in the towel. And Jesus says, in that victory, we will become like pillars in the temple of God. And so at times we may feel like we can be shaken and our strength is waning, but when we are made pillars, there is nothing that can knock us over.
Morris Ashcraft says the beautiful summary of these names that we learn of in the scripture that we will receive, these three names inscribed on the faithful Christians, is one of absolute security. If the believer has God's name, the name of the new Jerusalem and Christ's new name, they can surely know eternal life. To know the name of a person is to enjoy a particular relationship with him. We are told that we will know Christ's new name. And to answer your next question, that's above my pay grade. I don't know exactly what that entails. But what it does mean for us is that we will have such an intimate relationship with Jesus that we will know his full name and that relationship cannot be broken. Victory in Jesus means a strong, secure, unshakable relationship with him. A relationship no person, no religious group, no principality or power in this world can break. And yet we must choose to hold on to that victory crown. And so that is my challenge to you, First Baptist Church. When you feel like relinquishing that victory garland or trophy or medal in Christ, hold on to it. No one can take it from you, but there may be days where you feel like throwing it aside or casting it away. Hold on to the victory that you enjoy in Jesus Christ, for there is work to do. And we want others to experience that victory as well, don't we? Let's pray together.